Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. Hope all is well. Uh, We're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, We're going to step back in time about 100 years. We're going to talk about something that is part of the local history where I'm from, but it's not common knowledge. I actually, I mean, I grew up there. I lived my whole life there. I didn't learn about these events until I was, well, in my 20s. I certainly didn't learn about this in school. And before I get into this story, I just say that I'm neither pro-union or anti-union. That's not the point I'm trying to make here. I kind of feel like with all the modern labor laws and how litigious most people are nowadays, those two factors have kind of made unions a little bit unnecessary. But again, I'm not taking a pro or union stance. I'm just relating a story that I find incredibly interesting. And it's kind of amazing to me that this can go on in modern times. And although I don't think unions are super necessary today, the coal industry at the turn of the century in West Virginia was definitely a different time. And unions back then were a very big boom for the workers. And it's a little hard to defend the actions of the coal operators or to rationalize some of the things that they did. But just try to keep in mind that these were different times that we're talking about. Try to remember that for most of human history, lower class workers weren't really viewed as people. They were viewed as a commodity. Uh, The upper class people, they weren't evil. Um, They just really had a different outlook on life than what we have. But the coal boom during the Industrial Revolution Uh, caused a huge demand for workers in the West Virginia coal fields. Uh, West Virginia produced about 8 million tons of coal in 1870. Uh, By 1900, West Virginia was producing about 100 million tons of coal. Uh, That rapid growth in the coal industry, uh, you have to think about all the factories that were using coal as an energy source. Uh, Electric power plants were starting to come online, and then you've got all the construction in the cities using steel, those factors really made the coal industry grow in leaps and bounds in a very short time. And of course, that's also a time that you had a great deal of immigrants coming into the country. Uh, You had a lot of Irish moving into West Virginia, a lot of Germans, a lot of Italians that were coming into these little communities that were owned completely by the coal operators. And that's another part in this Coal operators were not from West Virginia. A lot of the coal operators at that time were out of Pittsburgh or Bethlehem. I think a lot of them were from Norfolk, had ties to the railroad. So you sort of had this perfect storm of circumstances where you had people doing a very dangerous job for people that had no ties to the local area. And keep in mind, this was a time that unfortunately... If you ran a coal mine, a lot of times the attitude to a report of, well, we had a mine explosion today, it killed 30 people, that operator's response might be, well, go into town, get me 30 more Irishmen, tell them to dig those bodies out of the way and get back to mining coal. There just was basically zero concern for miners' safety. And part of that was the technology. They just simply didn't understand what was causing a lot of these mine accidents, Knowing what we know now about methane, coal dust explosions, you see those old 
footages of miners with the carbide cap lamps where it was an open flame on their head. And you wonder how anybody survived. Uh, carbide lamps, you'd take a little piece of hydrogen carbide, and when that got wet, you would put water or spit down into the container with the carbide, and it would produce acetylene gas, and that was actually what was burning. Uh, but again, just an open flame in a mine to to me, sounds insane, but you've got to keep in mind that they just really didn't understand. I think some of those very early mines, one of the ways they tried to keep air flowing was they actually built fires on the different levels. And the thinking was that the chimney effect of the hot air moving up would pull fresh air in from the surface. But again, you're thinking, okay, that's an open flame and you're in a mine. Are you crazy? But that's simply the way things were done back then. And to think about life in those coal camps back then, 100 years ago, like I say, I grew up right on the edge of the coal fields. And if you would drive around West Virginia, um, McDowell County was just across the border. I could be into McDowell County in about 10 minutes. When you drive through those little coal camps, even today, it's surprising how isolated they are. Um, Now, I've talked about the roads in West Virginia. The roads are in surprisingly good shape, given the incredibly tiny population of West Virginia and the cold and the snow that they deal with every winter. The roads are in good shape. And even today, trying to get anywhere in West Virginia, there simply is no good way to get anywhere. There was a town a little north of us called Welch that had a very good drive-in diner called the Sterling. And me and my family would go there and eat not super regularly, but we try to make it down there at least once a year. It was 29 miles to this town, and you were lucky if it only took you an hour to get there. If you got behind a coal truck or somebody driving very slowly on these winding mountain roads, it could very easily take an hour and a half, two hours to travel 29 miles. So if you can imagine 100 years ago when there were not a lot of roads, there was no paving, very few people had automobiles at that point, the railroad hadn't really come into the mountains, all the railroad spurs that are there now was put in by the mining company so they could get their coal out. So you were incredibly isolated. You had no way to travel to the next town. The company owned the town. They owned the house that you lived in. You shopped at the company store. A lot of mines actually paid you in what was called script, which is basically they printed money. It was not legal tender anywhere except at company-owned stores and businesses. So the company controlled everything. They controlled your pay, food, clothing, even the roof over your head. And it gave them incredible control over the people that worked for them. These conditions kept the unions out of West Virginia for a long time. Most of the country, by the turn of the 20th century, the unions had a good foothold in most industries in this country. The West Virginia coal fields was a little pocket that they had not great deal of headway in. Now, the UMW did have union mines in West Virginia. Uh, at this time, I didn't, I couldn't find a percentage, but most mines were non-union privately owned. Uh, now, my family works worked in the coal mining industry for a long time. Uh, I never worked directly for a mine. My father actually did. He worked for U.S. Steel in the 70s. At that time, most of the mines were union. Um, now, it's mostly smaller operators. 
and it's kind of flipped. Uh, there are union mines. A lot of mines that are being privately owned, they're not union. But in the early 1900s, the UMW was just starting to get some footholds in West Virginia. All of these different conditions, uh, the terrible working conditions, uh, the coal operators having a stranglehold on their workers, all that started to come to a head in the early 1900s. And the first stirrings of armed conflict of what would become known as the West Virginia Coal Wars uh, happened in April of 1912, uh, the, the Paint Creek-Cabin Creek Strike. Now, there were 96 mines in the general area along these two creeks. Uh, it employed about 7,500 miners. Along Paint Creek, there were 41 mines. Uh, the UMW had managed to unionize all of those mines along Paint Creek. Now, along Cabin Creek, there were 55 mines that were not union. Now, the Paint Creek mines agreed to strike, and then the non-union Cabin Creek miners joined the strike about two weeks later in the hopes of joining the UMW themselves. Now, for the first month of the strike, it was nonviolent. Both sides were at the negotiating table. Nobody was throwing rocks or hurting anyone. But after about a month of stalled negotiations, the coal operators got together and decided that they had had enough of the strike and they were going to put an end to it. So they reached out to a company out of Bluefield, West Virginia, uh, called the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Now, if you've ever watched a Western and you've heard about the Pinkertons, uh, sort of like the Pinkertons, Baldwin Feltz began life hiring out security for the railroad. Uh, apparently, at that time, there was still a great deal of train robbery. But by the 1900s, that had tailed off enough that the railroads weren't really hiring outside security for their trains anymore. So the Baldwin Feltz agency switched over to hiring out basically armed goons to coal mines to act as security and as strike breakers. So in April of 1912, 300 Baldwin Feltz agents arrived in the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek area, and they immediately started attacking striking miners. And one of their big jobs was to evict miners and their families out of the company-owned homes. Obviously, this was a big issue because we've already talked about how isolated these little communities are. The UMW came in and set up a tent city in an area called Holly Grove. And that was the miners and their families someplace to stay while the strike was going on. And in July of that year, uh, a name that a lot of you will remember learning about in middle school civics, uh, Mary Harris Jones, uh, most of you will know her as Mother Jones. Uh, she was a union activist that was famous nationwide at the time. Uh, she arrived in the area to lend the union her support. And she was obviously there to organize the unions. Uh, one of the things she did was she led a march of 3,000 armed miners to Charleston, West Virginia, which is the state capital. And they marched to the Capitol building and they read a formal declaration of war against the coal operators right there in front of the state government. Something else that happened that July is the American Socialist Party sent a delegation to the tent city. How odd is it hearing that name, the American Socialist Party? Uh, they were there mostly to bring food and 
to help out around the tent city, doing things like uh, preparing meals and helping keep things clean. Uh, but another big thing they were doing there is they brought high-powered rifles and were passing them out to the strikers. So that July, a group of miners attacked a small town called Mucklow, a little south of Charleston. The gunfight that ensued claimed the lives of 12 striking miners and four mine guards. This marked the moment where it turned into an open-armed conflict. Uh, there'd been plenty of violence leading up to this, but until this point, the violence had been fistfights mainly. This was the first real gunfight and certainly the first deaths. Uh, the, the strike continued on. The skirmishes continued all the way through August. In September of 1912, a group of 5,000 miners arrived from areas north of the state capital, a little more unionized up in that area. It was at that point that the governor decided that he had to do something, uh, Governor William Glasscock. He declared martial law, and he sent in state troops to enforce the order. Uh, he sent in about 1,500 men. Uh, when they went into the tent city at Holly Grove, they confiscated close to 2,000 rifles, about 500 pistols, and they confiscated over 200,000 rounds of ammunition. So the governor was a little late to the party, but it looks like he did step in before things got seriously bad. Um, another thing that happened, a lot of miners were arrested, and they were not going to criminal courts with the state. They were where, the, where they were under martial law. They were getting trials in a military tribunal. No mining guards or Baldwin Felt agents were arrested and charged. It was all striking miners. Uh, obviously, this did not go over well with the with the miners themselves. On February the 7th, after martial law had been lifted and the state troops had left the area, uh, the miners attacked the town of Mucklow again. Response to this, not from the governor, this was from the coal operators. Uh, Baldwin Feltz agents and the Kanawha County Sheriff took a rail car and added machine guns and armor. They called this train car the Bull Moose Special, and they used it to attack the tent city with the machine guns. One miner was killed, uh, a man named Sesco Estep, uh, but I want you to just imagine that. Uh, you have got private security and an elected official using machine guns to fire into tents that had women and children in them. And again, this, this isn't happening in the Wild West or 1870. This is World War One era, the 20th century. Uh, the miners retaliated to this attack uh, by attacking Mucklow again. I, something odd in my research and all of this, uh, the miners attacked this little town three different times. I never found any information why they kept attacking this one little town. I don't know if there were supplies there that they were hoping to get, or if this was a staging area for the guards for the mines. There's no mention. I even went to the wiki page of this town. Uh, it's called Gallagher now, but the town's still there. There's not even any mention of it in the town's wiki page. It seems like that would be a pretty important part of the town's local history. I, but for whatever reason, they keep attacking this one little town. So Governor Glasscock, after these back and forth attacks, 
imposed martial law one more time. Now, he was almost out of office. This was sort of his his final act as sitting governor. Well, that and he uh, had Mother Jones arrested. Uh, she stood trial in the same military tribunals that the miners had, and she was actually sentenced to 20 years for inciting riots and conspiracy to commit murder. On March the 4th, a new governor took office, a man named Henry D. Hatfield, and he made ending the strike his first priority. Uh, He went down to the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek area. Uh, There were around 30 miners in custody down there. He ordered their release. Mother Jones, during this time, had developed pneumonia in prison. Uh, He had her moved to a medical facility in Charleston. And then he gave the Paint Creek miners the choice to either return to work or to be deported from the state. Now, the Paint Creek miners accepted the quote-unquote Hatfield contract. Uh, They signed it on May the 1st, and the union mines went back to work. Now, the Cabin Creek mines, they were the non-union ones. Uh, They held out a little bit longer, but things were definitely winding down. The last recorded instance of violence happened in early July. Now, keep in mind, this was just the very beginning of the West Virginia Cold Wars. The Paint Creek-Cabin Creek strike lasted 15 months and killed 50 people directly from violence. I could not find any estimates of how many people died from conditions in the tent city. Keep in mind, the winters in West Virginia and up in the mountains are brutal. And can you imagine living in a tent when it's degrees and there's two feet of snow on the ground? So there were a lot of deaths from disease, uh, exposure to the cold, lack of food. I did not find any estimates for that. Uh, so they did not get included. Uh, but they know that 50 people were killed from gun violence and murder during this strike. Now, like I say, this is this was just the beginning of this war. Um the governor stepping in and the martial law that calmed everything down. Then the country went into preparing for World War One, and that put a big pause on everything. Uh, but believe me, this was not the end of this story. That's all I've got time to talk about tonight. We'll get to the to the next part. And if you thought this sounds like something crazy that you couldn't imagine happening in the in this country in modern times. Wait till we get to the end of the story, because this is mild compared to what happens on down the road. Uh, but this is going to be a two-parter, uh, depending on how information I dig up about the rest of this story. It may even turn into a three-parter, but I think I can get everything that I'd like to say about this done in one more episode. Uh, but until then, that one will come out later this week. I hope you enjoyed it. This is a story that fascinates me. I enjoy talking about it. And like I say, there is a lot, lot more good stuff coming up on this story. Uh, so I hope you'll tune back in. If, you, if you're enjoying the show, uh, please give me a review on whatever app you're listening to this to. And as always, if you'd like to leave a comment, uh, you can send me an email at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com. All right, guys, I will talk to you soon. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a good evening. Bye.